This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, here we are at the end of yet another eventful week. Shall we take a little bit of stock of where we are? Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab is continuing his world tour, uh, stopping off today in Pakistan. I get the feeling that somebody says to him at the end of every uh, announcement that he makes, uh, coming up, Dominic, we're going to go to another country. Oh, really? Where's that? Uh, I haven't been to Pakistan before. Uh, I haven't also been to Qatar before. Could you take me to Reunion Island? Because I hear that's not far from here. It's part of France, I think. Um, This is a guy who's the foreign secretary of what used to be a very big power formerly known as the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He doesn't seem to know what the hell he's doing. I don't know what he's saying in Pakistan, but it doesn't seem to be very important. Even the Pakistani Foreign Secretary has walked off the stage. (laughs) I mean, it's not great, is it? Joe Biden, meanwhile, has warned that climate change is destroying the world without a hint of irony after he's destroyed the world by breaking away from uh, the Taliban. Sajid Javid, meanwhile, is telling every teenager in this country to get the vaccine, uh, and he also wants to add 2% to national insurance to pay for social care. Really? not the greatest timing of all time, is it? It's a funny old world. Meanwhile, the Woke Brigade is still fighting a rearguard action against the Piers Morgan victory this week. They're taking it out on colonialists, slave traders and schools. I heard this week that the statue of Thomas Guy, uh, which has been boarded up and covered up uh, by wood and planks all the way through the best part of the last year, is to be moved for fear that it might offend people outside a hospital, which he actually uh, managed to build with money that he raised from his own uh, 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 savings. This morning, we are kicking things off with Richard Tice, chairman of the Reform UK party. I'll be asking him where we're going to put all these Afghan refugees that one out of three councils are saying they don't want. We'll be asking him about China and its newfound influence in the world. And also, why is social care and the NHS in such a mess? Vaccine passports, booster jabs. Parliament's coming back next week. It's all going on. Even ABBA are reforming but only in hologram form. Richard and I will be discussing what else would you bring back in hologram form. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Well, we have managed to get to yet another Friday. Um, Schools are back pretty much. If you've got children, you'll be putting them into their school uniforms and sending them off on their way, uh, making sure that, of course, they've got their pencils, their suitcases, uh, their uh, travelling bags, and possibly uh, any vaccine passports that they may need. Richard Tice is here. Very good morning to you, Richard. Uh, Good morning, and let's hope they're not going back with masks, but I suspect some of them are. Well, do you know Uh, what? It looks as if the teaching unions would like all that to happen, but I heard a, a, a teaching union guy saying to Julia this morning, well, here's the logic. If Scotland are wearing masks to go back to school, why are we not doing it in England? And she quite rightly said, well, how about you go around the other way? Yeah. If, we, if, we, if we're not doing going back to school with masks, why are they doing it? I mean, it, you know, it's just unbelievable that your children have suffered so much for so long, mm. and they need some normality. Right. And, they, you know, it, it's, it's quite clear that there are too many vested interests who rather liked, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the status quo, what mm. happened over the last few months. And no, we've got to get uh, we've got to get children to have the confidence to be back fully in class uh, and learning properly and mm. looking forward to exams next summer. You know, that's that's about leadership mm. and, and about you know getting us back 
to normal. Not a new normal, but yes. normal. That well, is the absolute key. For my children, it's about kind of certainty as well, because they need to know that when they go back to school, actually, it's going to result in something. It's not just going to be another kind of step-by-step, day-by-day, oh, let's keep testing until the end of September and see how it goes. No, just make a decision, say we're not doing it anymore, yeah. and we'll go working all the way through to the summer. And that's right. We, we've. This is the moment where we need proper leadership that gives the nation the confidence to learn to live with COVID. Mm. That's where we are. And, you know, any, anybody who wants a vaccine uh, over the age of uh, now 16, uh, you know, has, has, has been able to take the vaccine. And, you know, mercifully, deaths are, are, are very low. So, you know, we've got to push on that. Mm. And that applies through all walks of life. Uh, and, you know, I think it's a this is a critical moment. And, uh, you know, Gavin Williamson, the prime minister, they've just got to stand up to all these people and say, no, this is it. We're, yeah. we're driving forward. And I wrote an article this week that actually, in order to be prepared for the worst, yes, you want to hope for the best, but you need to be prepared for the worst. And so I said, actually, we should seriously think about uh, rebuilding the Nightingale hospitals, having a medical reserve why, yeah, force of uh, retired medics mm. so that we're ready for anything, mm. whatever, uh, whether it's the virus or, or something else or a flu pandem- a- epidemic, whatever's thrown at us during this winter we're ready for it because the nation needs we've got to push on and we need to learn from whatever it was that went before otherwise what's the point of it all i mean exactly. there are many stories to talk about there's nothing particularly dominating but let's kick off with um dominic Raab today who's in pakistan i mean it's all a bit sort of sudden this suddenly the foreign secretary decided to start going places you know yesterday he was in qatar saying not very much today he's in pakistan saying not very much i mean it, it he he's clearly uh completely out of his depth mm. Uh, he, he looks as though he, he doesn't really know where he is, and right. maybe maybe he doesn't. Right. Um, but the reality is, you know, he's trying to close the uh, the stable door after the horse has bolted, mm. and he can give all the warm platitudes he wants. But the truth is, we've got zero leverage with uh, with the Taliban. That is the reality, mm. and you see it uh, reported today that uh, guess who's still got an embassy in Kabul? China. China. Yeah. Funny that. Yes. Guess who now is. Uh, the favoured pl- partner of the Taliban, China. China. Funny that. Yep. And why do you think that is? Because they're going to help them with um, developing right. uh, all of their, you know, lots well, of their minerals. Do, they're going to do what they did in Africa, yep. what they're currently doing in South America, and what they've done in the South Pacific, where they come to you and go, oh, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll build you a nice ferry terminal. Um, and unfortunately, because you don't actually have any ferries, don't worry about that. Yep. We'll bring our, our yep. own gunships around and we will actually dock as a naval battalion in, it's that, their, in your country. It's their incredibly long-term mm. uh, Belt and Road Initiative where they're extending their influence. And, uh, you know, this is, this, is this is the big change in the world order. Mm. In the, you know, they've got this 100-year plan and we've been incredibly short-sighted. So, yeah, that I think is really troubling. The, the shift in the power base so quickly yeah. uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and I know, in a sense... Many people say, why does it matter? It matters because it's geopolitically important. It's so close mm. to so many uh, you know, nations uh, that, are, uh, that are in flux and uh, that, are, that are really important to what's going on mm. in that part of the world. You know, China, Pakistan, Iran, Russia. You know, to give all that up, as mm. we've done, and now immediately we're seeing the consequences of that. Exactly. And I think it's very concerning. And to see it uh, now being played out as if uh, we still have any influence at all, it's kind of embarrassing to see Dominic Raab doing this uh, sort of lecture. Well, Because he, he, he should have done it before we left. Yeah, the, the reality is, uh, as I say, he's trying to close the stable door after the horse has bolted. Mm. He's months late, literally. Uh, his performance uh, a couple of days ago in front of the... Uh, 
the select committee was was, was pretty woeful. Yeah. Uh, he got a, a, a due drubbing from the chairman, Tom Tugendhat and others. Um, and yeah, it's been a very difficult, uh, a very difficult uh, few days for mm. him, and rightly so. Um, but he will survive because Boris basically doesn't fire anybody. Right. Um, so, uh, but anyway, we we can be optimistic. You know, we've got music coming back with Abba. Have, I mean, just you know, isn't it extraordinary? Well, I find it extraordinary that so many of the papers have got so excited about Abba coming back when they're actually not coming back. I mean, you know, they're not coming back. They're coming back well, in hologram form. It may be the best of all worlds, actually, Mike, yeah. in that we get some of their their talent and their their their, their music. Um, uh, but actually, we can sort of see them in hologram form as we used to know and love them. Yes. But what's the point of that? Because surely, I mean, we've seen, you know, the, the old videos, we've seen the Top of the Pops stuff, we've seen the movies that they've made uh, and all the songs that they've done. I'm not sure I want to see them in any other form. Really. I mean, I think I've had enough of them, to be honest. Well, it's but... a good question. What is the point? Why are they doing it? I don't know. It can't be money. I mean, they must well, they get so many royalties. I can't imagine they need money. I mean... No, it's, it's, I actually think it's probably just um, it's, it's, it's the love of what they did. Mm. It's, it's what they're good at. No, I'm quite looking forward to well, hearing listen, the album. And you and I were talking outside about what else could we bring back in hologram form, and maybe we're onto something here. I think we perhaps, could be. Perhaps with the paucity of leadership in the world at the moment, Joe Biden, world's worst president ever. You know, Boris Johnson not exactly you know at the races half the time. Why about we bring back Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher? You know, the world's greatest. No, I think I think this 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 could be a real opportunity. You've got uh, you've got those two. You've got Churchill. Uh, you've got um, people like uh, JFK. I mean, yep. the, 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 let, let's make a thing of this. Let's JFK. remind people. I don't think we need JFK, but I don't think JFK works in the modern arena. Because he was he was a great else, motivator and and well, he was uh, a great motivator of young women. No, I'm he not was sure. a, no, he was he he helped the American people, uh, you know, come out of the horrors of of World War Two. He was he was the big transition, the big change. Uh, and then, of course, there was his brother, who was also tragically assassinated, and yes. maybe he was even higher quality. Bobby, but, yeah, uh, Bobby. I think, but I think the hologram thing it could be it could remind people about what proper grown-up, mm. forward-thinking, courageous leadership yeah. is all about, and that's the thing at the well, moment that we, there is what, a massive pause. I mean, if you look of. at what Thatcher and Reagan achieved when it came to the former Soviet Union, and the fact that they basically bankrupted the Soviet Union and made it possible for people to live an ordinary life. Yep. Uh, behind the Iron Curtain to make the Berlin Wall come down. I mean, it was an extraordinary time to be alive. No, it really was because actually they had the courage to take on the Soviet Union, the vested interests of the unions in their respective countries. And, you know, they, they their legacy was transformational change. Mm. And whatever you thought about either of them, uh, but particularly Thatcher, those uh, of us, you know, of a certain age that remember her, you know, whether you whether you liked her policy or not, you knew that she stood for something. Mm. You knew that she had a very strong, clear, principled view. And, you know, she would have had a very principled view about how to deal with COVID, um, as opposed to being sort of buffeted by the wind. Yes. And, you know, the wishy And she was also a chemist, wasn't she, by trade. So she would have actually been treated presumably slightly more um, sort of, I don't know, with, well, more, she just, with more dignity because she's a scientist. She, uh, there's that, but she she had she had a feet on the ground mm. uh, and she had a very strong, clear view. And, you know, she was, she was not someone for turning. No. Um, also, somebody who has been dead for as long as she has and is still absolutely hated by the left. She must have done something right. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I think, the, 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 it, 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 basically, yes, that's right. She had, you know, she had a strong view. You knew where you were with her, and but it, it, it was courageous, bold leadership. Look what she did mm. taking back the Falklands. You imagine that happening with Boris now. Right. 
blundering and blustering right. his way. Well, I'm well, not Dominic quite sure. Well, well, Dominic Rowell doesn't know where the Falklands are. He wouldn't are. know where the Falklands is. No. Um, so, yeah, I think the, uh, the bringing back the holograms to remind ourselves about great, strong leadership would be a good thing. Yeah, I think it would. And let's also talk about what she might have made of some of the Conservative Party's current policies, which are about as conservative uh, as the least conservative thing you can think of. Not least this today uh, announcement from Sajid Javid. He wants to add 2% to national insurance to pay for social care. First question, why is social care such a mess? Uh, why has it been such a mess mm. after um, over 10 years of Conservative leadership? Look, I mean, the fundamental issue is, yes, the social care sector needs reform. Let's remember, uh, give or take 80% of it is actually run by private operators. Mm. Uh, and much of the profits in social care, guess where it goes? It goes to overseas shareholders. Mm. I'm going to be talking about this this uh, this whole point uh, with critical parts of our our nation and infrastructure and utilities mm. more and more because I think it's a huge scandal. But the idea of raising taxes, I mean, we need to be cutting taxes to growing the economy faster yeah. with smart regulation because that's actually how you will get higher tax revenues in the medium term. The, but the Tories, they're not the Tories anymore. They're not the Conservatives. Yeah. They are the con-socialists. Mm. Uh, in my view, the party of high tax, we've got the highest tax mm. take for 70 years and the lowest growth for 60 years. Yeah. So, you know, things have got to change and you don't change it by raising taxes. Uh, that is the road to ruin. No, you really don't. I mean, we had a call yesterday and we get calls like this quite a lot and I see quite a lot of this kind of thing on social media from a guy who said, look, I've always voted Conservative. I can't bring myself to do it anymore. But who on earth do I vote for? And your name came up, the Reform Party came up. But it's very difficult in a two-party system to make any difference, isn't it? Well, the point is, if you want to win the lottery, you've got to buy a ticket. Mm. And, uh, you know, reform exists because we think we can make a difference. We want to try and shape and influence the date, uh, the uh, the debate. Mm. And there is a vacuum. Uh, no one else apart from reform is campaigning to cut taxes, mm. to cut daft, unnecessary regulation, and to put the foot on the accelerator of growth. Yeah. Because that's how... Uh, that's you know that's what Maggie Thatcher did. We got high growth, and it, that's why the Conservatives in '97 handed over an incredibly, um, uh, an incredibly strong financial situation to the Labour Party, which yeah. of course they then spent 13 years blowing. Yes, uh, which we're still paying uh, which, the dividend. Uh, so on. yeah, but the reality is uh, that raising taxes um, is the road to ruin, and uh, but the Conservatives seem to have completely lost the plot. Yeah, they really do. Richard, stay with us. Richard Tice is here. We're going to talk about his show last week in which he touched upon foreign ownership of utility companies, the Chinese influence as well. We'll get to that. We'll also get to more things about what we should be doing uh, with regards to the reopening of the economy, why we're still dragging our feet, why there's still talk of vaccine passports, all of that coming up next on Talk Radio. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB Plus, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. We've got lots to do, lots to talk about over the course of the next couple of hours. Richard Tice is here with me, uh, the chief uh, man at the Reform UK Party. Um, let's talk a little bit about your show last Sunday, because I listened in, uh, having heard what you were talking about, Southern Water, you know, uh, many people's yeah, most, look, I, most hated company. Well, I um, think, look, in a sense, um, the, the, our public utilities, you know, we, we all use them. They are, they are part of the critical infrastructure mm. of the UK. And I'm really concerned about the percentage of them that are owned by overseas investors, yeah. in particular... They're pretty much wholly owned, right? Almost wholly owned. Um, you know, I discovered that actually um, a Chinese billionaire is the biggest owner, the biggest single owner of UK critical infrastructure, i.e. public utilities, and can literally mm. turn the lights off in London. And I think this is strategically incredibly foolish. 
incredibly risky. But more than that, they're making enormous profits. I don't know what these regulators have been doing, but I've been studying this Not week. very much. I'm going to be talking about it more this Sunday. And I'm going to be exposing the vast profits that are being made by these public utilities. Mm. And the money is disappearing out the side door overseas. And I think that's wrong. And it's not no surprise that people feel it in their pocket. You know, their weekly bills, their monthly bills constantly going mm. up. People know something's wrong. And I'm going to really try and hone in on actually uh, the huge amounts of money that are going out the side door. I just think it's wrong. In, in some countries like America, for example, um, foreign ownership of critical uh, public utilities, uh, it is, it's either not allowed or uh, under very strict um, minority uh, control. And I think, you know, that's something we've got to have a proper open debate about. Absolutely. I mean, I did a thing um, a couple of weeks ago about Ofgem and how useless they are. And they're run by this guy who makes something like £315,000 a year. Uh, he took a £15,000 bonus last year uh, as part of a million-pound bonus that was handed yep. out to all the various staff. He seems to operate more on behalf of the companies that he's supposed to be representing the customers against, as it were, than he is for us. And we're going to get the biggest single rise in in electricity bills, in gas bills, coming in October, yes. some people are going to be paying a third more oh, it, than it, they were paying. It's, it's outrageous. Well, I, I'm on it, I tell you, mm. and I'm not going to let this... I'm going to be like a dog with a bone with this. Good. For example, the uh, the chief exec, I think it's the chief exec of UKPN, he's taking, a, uh, taking home over two million a year for a public utility that looks after the electricity cables mm. in London and the South East. And you think, right. hang on, I mean, this is just... It's, it's just money extraordinary. for old rope, isn't it? It's money for old rope. And it's going on and on. Mm. Uh, it's happened for a decade or so, and it needs exposing. Mm. And and so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep on at it. Well, I think it'll be a very popular cause. What have you got for us uh, this Sunday? So uh, so we've got uh, more of that. Um, I'm going to be talking about uh, Nightingale Hospitals. You know, how, how does the NHS make sure that it's ready mm. for, uh, you know, for the, for the winter coming? Whatever, whatever gets thrown at us, whether yeah. it's... Uh, you know whether it's a flu epidemic, whether it's a, a you know another variant of COVID, we always hear there's a winter crisis mm. in the NHS. Well, look, if you know something's coming, get prepared yeah. for it, get organised, get ready. So we'll be talking about that, and uh, yeah, there'll be a, um, and it's be a, a big, big debate. Also, there's a big week coming up because Parliament's back next week, um, and you know normally speaking, that would create a whole raft of legislation, new bills being produced, and and things being debated, but. Something's happened to our democracy parliamentary-wise, I think, where it's not quite doing its job. Well, we, we sort of don't know what's going to happen. Mm. And you, you keep hearing so many platitudes. You keep hearing Pretty Patel talking strong and tough about, uh, you know, the illegal immigration yeah. coming across the channel. But you know that actually... But that's all she does. It's, it's all she does, because the reality is the numbers are going up and up. Uh, we'll probably be looking at that again mm. on Sunday. Uh, you know, this is... Uh, there are so many of these issues where you just hear warm words... But there's nothing going no. on underneath it. And meanwhile, we're hearing quite rational conversations around the country, particularly in councils, local councils, some of whom are saying, look, we can't take these Afghan refugees that you keep... I mean, Dominic Raab was busy in Qatar making sure that more refugees could come here. Well, that's all very well. But where are they going to go? Well, if think, councils don't want them, you know, what, what, where does that leave them? Well, the issue, of course, is that actually so many councils, local authorities, have been struggling under the huge numbers of uh, illegal migrants who've come across the channel mm. uh, who they haven't been able to deport the foreign criminals that we haven't been able to yes. deport so so yes um you know that the, they are struggling with the numbers we you know we are a welcoming uh, nation for genuine asylum seekers and there is a genuine crisis coming out of afghanistan uh, much of which um sadly is of course uh, of our making mm. in in, uh, in conjunction with joe biden yeah um and so we've got some serious responsibilities to live up to and you know we've got to find the places but the reason they're finding it challenging is because 
uh, of the huge numbers well, because the, of all the, the numbers we've got already the, the illegal yeah. um, migration that's happened that we haven't dealt with and so there are consequences to a failure of political will there are consequences to a failure of leadership and that's what's happening now. Yeah, absolutely right. Richard, good to see you. Uh, he'll be back, of course, on Sunday uh, at 10 o'clock. You don't want to miss that. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, um, just this week, we've been celebrating the victory for free speech that Piers Morgan got when Ofcom declared that his criticism uh, of Meghan Markle, the Queen of Woke, as he calls her, uh, was entirely justified, was entirely uh, the right thing to do and was in no way, shape or form racist. And I think that was a massive step forward for all of us who work and live and operate in the sphere of broadcasting, in the sphere of media, uh, in the sphere of opinion. Because after all, just because you have an opinion that somebody doesn't like doesn't mean you shouldn't have it, does it? Now, let's talk to Emma Webb, co-founder of Save Our Statues, because a story this morning uh, has come across our desk. Haberdashers Asks Boys School and Haberdashers Asks Boys uh, School for Girls have confirmed that the, the name of the 17th century merchant Robert Ask will be removed from their title. So, I presume that means they'll become Haberdashers Boys School and Haberdashers School for Girls. But maybe they'll have to take that out as well, because that's what they were going to try and do at St. Paul's, because girls was, in fact, a too pejorative term. Emma, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. It's quite confusing, all this, isn't it? Yeah, uh, we've seen school names being changed before. Um, there was a, a name that uh, of a school that had been changed because it was called Rhodes Primary School, yes. even though it wasn't named after the Cecil Rhodes that was the controversial figure that everyone was talking about at the time. Mm. It was just some distant relation that had never actually met Cecil Rhodes. Right. Um, and this is a problem that I think people assume hasn't gone away because we no longer see on our tv screens the graphic images of statues like colston being t torn down and thrown into mm. the harbor we see things like that happening quite recently in canada um but actually this is something that is still going on and it's become almost institutionalized um we've only recently just seen the decision by St. Guy's, uh, sorry, Guy's and St. Thomas's mm. Hospital to remove the statue of Guy from there. There's a, a big row going on at the moment with Goldsmiths University about Deptford Town Hall wanting to remove some statues of Nelson Drake, um, include and including, strangely enough, an anonymous figure. No one knows who that naval figure is, but they also want that. Well, that he's, about, he's bound to be a colonial well. swine. And slave well, trader, quite. Right? The students, the students who uh, <laughs> occupied the town hall, said that they wanted to have the four known colonizers removed from outside of the town hall, even though it's really only Drake, Nelson, and in addition another man called Robert Blake, who was a naval uh, a naval captain under Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century, and then this unknown anonymous naval figure, and they described them as being known colonizers. So I'm not sure what they know that nobody else does. Well, this is the interesting thing, because going back to Mr. Ask, Robert Ask is his real name. Uh, he died in 1689, bequeathed £20,000 back then, which was an awful lot of money, for the education of children. Most of them from poor families, uh, many of them in an almshouse in Hoxton, which, of course, is now a very trendy part of East London, but then was a very working class uh, part of London. Um, and all he ever really did, as far as educating children was concerned, was provide the money for people who couldn't otherwise afford an education to get one. And I find it astonishing that they want to punish not only uh, his sort of uh, his legacy, but they just want to remove him from history. Yeah, these are people who, historical figures who did both 
you might say good and bad in their lives. It's actually very difficult to find a prominent historical figure from a certain period in our history that didn't have some kind of connection of their money to slavery because it was such a large part of the economy. So obviously many of the, the figures who were huge philanthropists in the 17th and 18th century had connections to companies like the South Sea Company or the East India Company. And that's actually what we see with uh, Thomas Guy as well, that he was a bookseller who did very well out of his investments in the South Sea Company. He um, had £193,000 of profit, which is a hell of a lot of money in, today, mm. in today's money. And he used that money, including bequeathing part of his, uh, well, that was part of the money, but he also bequeathed his entire estate uh, in the 1700s to uh, to essentially to create to uh, help to to uh, look after people with incurable health problems mm. in the area. And that then became St. Thomas uh, Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital. Um, and that's why from the se- uh, mid uh, sort of early mid seven, uh, 17th century, this statue of Guy stood in the courtyard of the hospital mm. and now they want to to move it um into a less prominent position so it's a strange uh, activity that is still going on with people pouring over the uh pouring over the investment histories of philanthropists from hundreds of years ago and trying to punish them for uh their investments yeah. even though they did good things with the money so it's a it's a sort of mixed history there and in the process of doing so they're actually ignoring public consultations the public don't want this 75 percent of people said they wanted guy to stay where he was when the city of london were talking about removing statues from within the town hall there um the public consultation found that 71 percent of people wanted to keep the statues and they still decided to remove them Mm. so these as was pointed out by a senior source at the uh, hospital's foundation what they're doing is they're fighting a battle they know they're going to lose because the government are very likely to challenge this Uh, and they're doing this uh solely to prove how woke they are and will be spending a lot of money on an expensive legal battle even though that money could be spent on patient care which is what the endowment is originally for Mm. and it is out of that endowment that they will have to fight this legal battle so this is really an ongoing saga with so many different institutions schools town halls and local authorities all across the country well it's funny because i only just discovered that there was a problem with thomas guy um last year when i was walking around during one of the lockdowns and you know because it's, it's a guy's hospital is literally around the corner from our office and i walked through this particular courtyard and suddenly thought why is there a huge kind of um wooden structure in the middle of the square and what I didn't know until I went up to look at what was written on it was that this was just the statue being covered up and they completely covered it um, so nobody could see it because they were fearing that, in fact, if anybody cast their eyes on it, they would be so offended as to you know, not be able to recover from the shock. And I just thought, this is completely bonkers, absolutely mad. Because also, apart from anything else, just looking at the statue now uh, on our television screens... It's a rather beautiful piece of art, actually. And a lot of these statues are fascinating to look at just from the point of view uh, of, you know, the way that the work was done, because it's very much of its time. It's very much an historical depiction of an individual. And I think it's part of not just our history, but of our social fabric. It's beautiful and it's listed. And I think that another aspect of this statues row is that people seem to have forgotten that these are works of art. Mm. They are not just um, 
you know, objects within our modern culture war. They have right. a, a history all of their own. And actually, the the foundation released a statement about the decision to remove this statue or to move it into a less prominent position. And they said that the future of the statues is for the foundation to decide. Well, I don't think so. Mm. Th these statues are not, you know, de facto owned by the the foundation these are in a sort of broader sense owned by the british public Absolutely. this is our history mm. just because it is on land owned by the foundation just because it is even if it you know a statue is owned by a particular local authority or a particular private institution or company those statues belong to all of us and we you, each generation doesn't have the right to decide to remove pieces of art from our public space no that are there for us and belong to us in the broadest possible sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a bit like uh, Westminster Council saying, I'll tell you what, we can't have Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square anymore. We're just going to take it down. And you go, well, actually, no, you can't take it down. It's, as you say, part of our culture. Is the Sadiq Khan Statue Commission still going? And, and if so, uh, what are they doing? I'm not sure what they're doing at the moment, but it's def definitely still something that is is ongoing. Um, and it's also something that seems to have proliferated. And we said originally when Sadiq Khan set up this Commission for Diversity in the Public Realm with its Orwellian sounding name, yeah. that that was really the first sign that this iconoclasm, this cultural vandalism had been institutionalised, that it was something that was going to bore its way into different local authorities mm. and so on. And that is exactly what has happened. And as I mentioned already, these uh, local authorities they don't give a damn what the public think the same was the case with um, obviously the government have this retain and explain policy well the explain aspect of this policy is also becoming quite politicized with the plaques mm. giving a very biased review of the statues and the the individual's history and when they consulted the public about, there was a, a Boer War memorial they consulted the public about, um, and also uh, an, another memorial that they, uh, various local authorities, one of them was Picton in Carmarthen, Wales. Uh, and when they consulted the public about whether or not they wanted to have plaques on there, it was only around 10% or 2% <laughs> respectively. So the public don't even want the plaques there. Mm. They want the statues to be left as they are, in situ, not messed with. Um, and this is something that I think goes all the way back to Sadiq Khan's statue review, which is this idea that we should be reviewing our statues in light of the views of the people now, rather than respecting the fact that a lot of these statues were put up by subscription in the past. And these are something that we should be taking care of and passing on to future generations. And we've seen it also in Liverpool recently, and most people won't be aware that Sky Arts have uh, partnered um, it with a with a group in Liverpool to dress up the statues. It's a Sky Arts project called History Redressed. Oh, yeah. And they're dressing up statues of Queen Victoria in um, all sorts of silly things. They've dressed up Disraeli and LGBT and trans flags. Of course they have, yeah. um, and so they're really almost forcing these statues to become part of the culture war, which yeah. puts them in an extremely perilous position. But what if some of us are offended by that? Can we then complain and make them take the uh, redressing off? I think not all offence was made equal, Mike. <laughs> well, listen, I'm, I'm hoping, and I'll just get your last thought on this, uh, on the Piers Morgan verdict uh, that Ofcom came out with. I'm really hoping that that is going to be the start of something, uh, of the fight back of common sense, where people are, in fact, empowered to have opinion and to have a decent opinion, uh, not something which is offensive, because we all know the difference between something which is offensive and which is not. But if somebody is offended, that doesn't mean that the opinion is offensive, does it? 
yeah, it's a great victory for free speech. And I think we should all be very pleased about it. And as you said earlier, you know, those of us who uh, do, I suppose you would say comment journalism, mm. which I think is what Pierce is really sort of the king of comment journalism yeah. in that respect. Um, so this is very good news. And it's also a huge victory for journalism itself because, you know, this was a victory for Pierce standing up for his right to be able to say, no, I am allowed to disbelieve Meghan and Harry, um, you know, I don't have to take them at their word. I'm allowed to be critical of mm. that. And that is something that is key to journalism. I mean, people shouldn't just swallow accepted sources. We should be allowed to criticise and disbelieve, uh, disbelieve certain sources um, and to be able to express our opinions about them. And I think that there was nothing particularly offensive in what Pierce had said. Um, and so this is a, this is a great victory for free speech. And I hope that there will be other broadcasters who will feel comforted by this, that um, Ofcom will ultimately stand up for them. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Well said. Emma Webb, thank you very much indeed, co-founder of Save Our Statues, because our statues are under attack. And it's ridiculous because they're not offensive. They depict something that happened a very long time ago. They depict people who were involved in the setting up of schools, of hospitals. They were historical figures. Just look at them. Think about them talk about them, even debate about them and around them. But don't just take them away. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Here's the point. We are a very welcoming country. Why else would so many people from so many other parts of the world want to come and live here? People come here from Libya. People come here from Eritrea. People come here from Hong Kong. People come here now from Afghanistan. People come here from Iran. People come here from America. People have come historically from the Caribbean countries. People have come here from Spain, from Mexico, uh, from Argentina. We are a very, very cross-cultural mix of people in this country, particularly in our cities, particularly in London, in Birmingham, in Manchester, um, and in even Glasgow. Uh, but not much, not to such a big extent. Let's talk to William Clouston now, uh, who's leader of the Social Democratic Party, because I want to ask him... Where is the balance? Because I think we need to find out where the balance is, because one in three councils is now saying they haven't got the bandwidth, if you like, to take any Afghan refugees because they simply don't have the housing. They've got plenty of problems of their own that they haven't fixed and they don't have spaces in the schools either. William, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Good to talk to yeah. you. I think this is an important conversation to have because, you know, some people are frightened of having it because they're scared of being accused of being racist, scared of being accused of being, you know, uh, uh, lacking in compassion. I'm neither of those things. 
But I also believe that we have a limit. We are a small country. Uh, we are quite a crowded country in most places. Um, and we can't just continue to invite people here and say, welcome with open arms. Yeah, I mean, it depends which categories of migrant we're talking about. Uh, in, in relation to Afghanistan, we, we do have a moral obligation to those that worked for us. And I think most British people understand that and agree yeah. with that. And I think the, the the wave of migration, if you want to call it that, uh, under the Arab scheme and, and so on, might be 12,000, might be eventually be 20,000 or even more. Mm. I think most people understand that. And I think there will be challenges for the councils. I can understand. It's not, it doesn't surprise me that two thirds of UK councils uh, haven't stepped up. But I think together, actually, there's 333 principal councils in the country, Mike, if you do the maths, um, you know, it's, it's, it's 20 or 30 or 40 each. I know it won't be like that because actually in reality, the larger cities uh, like Manchester, Birmingham, London and Leeds and so on will probably take the most. Mm. And actually there, there are resource challenges. I have a lot of sympathy with uh, the leaders of those councils uh, on resources. I mean, we've neglected public sector housing for years and years and years and some of these chickens come home to roost. Mm. But I think that is a totally, I think that the, the, the migrants from Afghanistan presently, many of whom worked for us, are a totally different category to the foolish open door policy we're running on the south coast well that's the thing um and i was listening to dan jarvis who's uh, you know the former mp former veteran of afghanistan as well and also now mayor i think of uh, south yorkshire he was saying that it wouldn't be right for an awful lot of these uh, afghan refugees to end up in the north of england which i know is where you are as well um yeah and it would largely be the case that it could happen because it's cheaper to find housing in the north of england than it is in the southeast yeah, no, that's a fair point. I mean, in the county that I'm speaking from, Northumberland, there are actually pockets in southeast Northumberland where uh, social housing, the supply of social housing exceeds demand. So actually, logically, that is where uh, some of the migrants will go. Uh, and in the short term, that pretty much has to be the case. And if you're an Afghan migrant that is uh, scared of losing your life and being killed, then, it, 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 you know, it, you, you have to be settled where you can be settled and it's an emergency but i think in the long term it is it is true that uh people settle probably integrate better where there are other communities that can help them and where they feel more at home and actually and that is always the cities i don't know if you've seen it mike but there's a film uh doing the rounds now called limbo and i went to see it the other day mm. about uh, it's set on in, in in remote scotland and it had sort of echoes of local here and other things it's quite an interesting film um, but that was about the, the challenges where, of disbursement. You know, you put people from Afghanistan uh, out into the remoter parts of the UK. Maybe that's not going to last because maybe they don't want to live there. Hmm. Well, I mean, on the other hand, maybe they prefer that, though, because if you're taking people from what could be a relatively remote country, because, yes, Kabul is a city, but an awful lot of these people may be from other parts of, uh, of Afghanistan. And because one of the things that was one of the arguments that was made was that, you know, we can't nation build in Afghanistan because they don't want to live as a Western democracy. They live a very different kind of life. It's not for them uh, to have to, uh, to do the sorts of things that we do on, on a daily basis. It may be that the outer reaches of, uh, of Scotland and some remote island is, is better uh, for them to live in than, than it is to be in the middle of Manchester. I'm not sure I'm persuaded. I think initially the support systems that people, migrants have, are often within their own 
uh, ethnic group and religious group and so on. So I th I, I'm not persuaded by that. I think a lot of people, and it has been tried actually, I mean, in the short term, I think, again, you've got to distinguish between this emergency that we have now of accommodating people that are in fear of their lives and what will happen in the future. But as I say, a lot of chickens come home to roost when you neglect the council housing and the social housing stock as much as successive governments have done so in this country. And I blame New Labour every bit as much as the Tories on this. You know, it's, it's really, uh, the failure is incredible. We spend about six billion pounds a year building uh, social housing, and yet we spend about 26 billion on housing benefit. It's, mm. it's short-termism of the worst kind. Yes, exactly right. And when you look at the way that some of our um, institutions are not exactly succeeding, like the NHS, where people up and down the country are struggling to get an appointment with a GP, uh, where people mm. are waiting uh, sometimes years to get an appointment uh, to get some kind of procedure done in hospital, where schools mm. are kind of limit up, where they're simply having to put you know, containers into playgrounds in order to make classrooms bigger, uh, in order to, to, to accommodate more people, where shortages mm. of housing are all over the place. You know, mm. why are we not having, the, why, why is no politician really having this conversation? Because I've got a typical reaction from somebody who calls himself Chunky, uh, who says, just listen to a bloke called Mike Graham on talk radio for five minutes. Jesus, I was waiting for Wagner to start playing as he was kicking off about migrants coming into Britain. And this is a typical ignorant comment from people on the left who think that, you know, we have some kind of bottomless pit because somehow we have to allow everybody who wants to come here to come here. And there's plenty of people here who need help. There's plenty of people here uh, who need um, the state to, to enable them to get the next leg up so that they can have some kind of life. And I'm sorry, it is not, as I say, a bottomless pit. No, I agree with you. Actually, it's not true that some people don't talk about it. We in the SDP do talk about it. And I interviewed Liam Halligan the other day, who's got an excellent book out about housing. And I tackled Liam on, on, on the question of the, the interlink between mass migration and housing. Mm. And you cannot ignore it. I mean, sorry, unless, if you're numerate, you cannot ignore this. Uh, we take in, in, a, in a high year about three quarters of a, a, a million uh, gross uh, inward migration. And, and that's a huge number. And remember, Mike, if that nets down to sort of 350 uh, thousand hmm. that's still more more than the number of housing units i mean i'm talking about flats and houses that we build a year yeah. you cannot i'm sorry particularly in the way you're speaking from the southeast london the southeast you cannot uh disentangle housing policy from migration you, mu you must consider it in the round and, I'm, and i know that obviously we've been governed by successive political establishments that are the reverse to planning they won't plan anything they won't uh, plan public transport or, or even health services properly, but they certainly won't plan housing. They'll do anything but talk about this. Yeah. And I'm afraid the first thing I would do, Mike, is to is to stop the illegal migration on the south coast. Yeah. Successful states like Denmark and Australia can do this, and they better get their skates on because mm. public the public can get getting sick of this. And that's exactly right because part of the reason why I think people. Um, are less, um, shall we say, willing to invite anyone who wants to come here from Afghanistan is because of what's been going on for the best part of a year. Because what we've seen is an incredible ramping up of the numbers, um, a, a kind of um, industrialisation, if you like, of the people trafficking business um, and many, many people making millions and millions of pounds um, and that we seemingly incapable to do anything about it. And if it wasn't for that, I'm sure people would be far more tolerant uh, of legal migration and people being welcomed into this country um, who deserve to be here. 
Of course. I mean, if you don't get your migration policy right, you will invite problems down the line. And, and remember that the people arriving, the 12,000 people that have arrived illegally, and that's the ones they probably know about on the south coast illegally. That is not migration in the sense of uh, refugee migration. It's it basically economic migration. Uh, last time I went to France, which is two years ago, uh, France was a safe country, a very pleasant country. You cannot argue that those people, I think what those people are doing are, are, are what I would call jurisdiction shopping. Yeah. What they're doing is going around and saying, well, I rather like what Britain offers. I'll just, I'll just move in there. They're not fleeing their lives in the, in the sort of 54 convention sense. It's, it's untrue. I have a friend, you know, years back, a, a, an Ethiopian who, who was a, a migrant to Sudan uh, during, during conflict there. Yeah. And he was in Sudan and then he went home back home to Ethiopia. That, 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 that is a genuine, uh, you know, a refugee. Who, who is not, this is a completely different category. And I think most British people can see that. But you can't, I would argue, I mean, we've argued as a party for less migration anyway. I think mass migration, and, and certainly the sort of open borders that we've had with the EU uh, in the labor market, yeah. have had two main effects, Mike. I mean, the one, one effect is to depress wages, particularly lower wages. And a second effect is to discourage training. And we've got the lorry drivers uh, issue uh, arising, and and I think that 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 sort of is interrelated to Brexit in a way because we've for years we've just relied on foreign labour. We've we've totally forgotten about the need to train our own people. Yeah, and why is that though? Because an awful lot of people in this country would say, well, we don't want to do that job because, for, quite frankly, we wouldn't work for that kind of money. And there's been a kind of an undercutting. One of the things that that Australia did very very well was they produced um, proper trade unions who actually protected minimum wages who protected um, the fact that if you were uh, working in a particular job you couldn't be undercut by somebody coming from another country and that's as much to do with the employers as it is to do with the immigrants yeah the minimum wage in australia is very high you know you probably know we're an anglo-australian family and and, and two of our lads have worked in, in melbourne for, for a few years yeah. and they've gone elsewhere now but they yeah i mean it's very very high um, I, my reaction, I mean, all this, all this hand-wringing about, oh, we're going to have to spend more uh, on wages and, oh, you know, uh, lorry drivers are being paid more. I, I would say it's about time. Yeah. You know, actually, the, what, the, the returns that capital gets and the, return, the returns that labor gets has been skewed in, in favor of capital for a long time. And I, I'm, I'm bringing it on. I mean, uh, as far as our theory about what Brexit was about, I think to a great extent it was about training British workers and getting wages up. And, and, and both of those things are consequences. And all the Remainers complaining about it and increasing prices and so on, well, lap it up. Yeah. Well, also, you know, we always get told, oh, we can't make, uh, pay people more money because the prices of everything will have to go up. Well, I'm not quite sure why that has to always be the case, because what we do know uh, is that many of these companies make an awful lot of money. Um, and the, and, and the, I guess they're now reaping the whirlwind of using a lot of foreign labour, which in the end is casual. And if it doesn't like what is happening, will disappear. Yeah, they use it as slack. It's used as slack. And actually, it also has a terrible effect long term on UK productivity. Mm. But you have an open uh, labour market like that. And, and if demand increases, you can just... Uh, get your factory slightly fuller for, for labour. You, you're using labour as slack in that sense. It actually disincentivizes capital investment as well. What it's not actually a, a puzzle to me why UK productivity isn't as high as it should be. I think it. I think the open labour markets that we've had over the past 20, 30 years are partly a cause of that. And I think it's correcting. I think it'll take time to correct, Mike. I think some of these 
issues of people, again, Remainers complaining about the choices of their sandwich mm. filling being reduced and so on, as you say, yeah. McDonald's not being, it doesn't bother me. No. I think, honestly, there are bigger issues at stake here. Well, exactly right. And I'm looking at your Twitter uh, at the moment, and you, uh, I see you put something out about uh, how the Tories are deliberately shortlisting foreign suppliers in India and the Netherlands for a £1.5 billion contract to supply fleet solid support vessels for the Royal Navy. So, I mean, if yes. the government's doing that, you can't really blame, I suppose, private business for doing the same. Well, that, yes, and remember, it's a Tory government. I mean, we, again, it gets back to the sort of theory of what sort of Brexit you wanted. On the centre-left, we wanted a, a more domestically focused Brexit. I've argued for slightly more trade friction. I want our factories to be busier making goods for us and others. I don't, I'm not convinced at all that we couldn't build these vessels. We can, actually. I mean, there are, there are, there are UK mm. firms on the shortlist as well. But it just strikes me as indifferent. You know, it's not the... Not the um, the, the, the Brexit that we wanted. I, 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 want, I want the government to take more seriously reshoring and I want them to think about supply lines. I mean, I think hasn't the pandemic, Mike, proved that what has what made where and by whom matters, surely? Well, I think it matters if it starts to affect the ongoing kind of economy of your country. And I'm not one for protectionism, but by the same token, you can't be completely and utterly unaware of the fact that if you export all of your manufacturing to another country and you don't have anybody who can do anything anymore, that's a problem. It's a major problem. And you, we've, you know, as a party, we've fought three by-elections this year and uh, they've been uh, tough by-elections to fight. But, you know, Airdrie... Uh, Hartlepool and Batley are all post-industrial towns. Yes. And, and honestly, you only have to speak to people and have a look around to see the cost of deindustrialization there. You know, they, they've removed the industrial, well-paid industrial job, mm. which was the which was the foundation of the family. And and obviously the social problems that result uh, down the, downstream from that are, are colossal. So I want us to think about causes. I want us to think. I want us to reindustrialize. And I think we can do it, but you have to first, you have to have a political class that wants to do it. Yes. And I think we need skilled working to be brought back to this country because we were very good at it. Uh, we were the engineers of the world at one point. And, you know, it's unfashionable to say that now because you're accused of being some kind of mad, um, you know, flag waving maniac. But in fact, mm. I think we should be proud of our country and what this country makes and, and what it doesn't make anymore uh, makes us worse off. I don't wish to necessarily import absolutely everything. I don't want everyone to go to university and get a degree in media studies uh, and go and sit in some think tank you know because that's not for everybody we need more we need more manual workers we need more experts in in plumbing in mechanics in all of the things that we used to be good at and i don't understand why this government doesn't seem to see it all they've got for us now is the green revolution and they seem to think that they're going to be building so many wind turbines in grimsby that everyone will be happy well we won't be well i just think it's i think it's a legacy of being conditioned over many many years that there is no alternative, you know, so ultra free trade is the only thing you can do. And the idea of training your own population to do something is anathema to some people. So yeah. I think it just takes a bit of time for reality to dawn, actually. You can't, it's not fair to other places either. You look at the health service. We, we, we have, it's full of uh, doctors and nurses from other jurisdictions and often poorer jurisdictions. Yeah. And it shouldn't be beyond us to train enough people to run our own health service. But you're quite right, Mike. On universities, universities must be slimmed down drastically. I think it's not socially useful to get half of all school leavers to go to university. Mm. I'd, I'd go for vocational training and skills instead. Absolutely right. And that would help everybody. Uh, and it would stop 
people from somehow having jobs which didn't last very long because they keep getting undercut by somebody who comes in and does it cheaper. William, great to talk to you as ever. William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party, a party that speaks for an awful lot of people. Uh, but again, because when we speak about this quite often, people go, well, who else can we vote for? Because it's difficult. It's very difficult to get people elected in this country uh, in a first-past-the-post system. I'm not suggesting for a second, by the way, uh, that what we should be doing is somehow getting involved in proportional representation because I don't think that's any better but I just think we need to have a kind of step change on how we view political parties. And if you want to have some decent ideas, you could do a lot worse than look at the Social Democrats, looking at uh, the Reform Party as well, because the Tories have lost their way. Labour Party aren't worth a fag end. And the Lib Dems, well, listen, uh, depending on what day of the week it is, you never know quite what they're going to say. But this is uh, the debate that I want to have. I want to continue to have it because we have to do something here. We cannot just go, it's fine, no problem at all. Just come in, do whatever you like. We'll get you a school, we'll get you a house, we'll get you a job, uh, we'll get you some money. It's fine, absolutely no problem at all. What about the people who don't have any of those things? because they haven't got the money or the wherewithal uh, or the education or anything to do uh, with what we should be helping them with. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So uh, let us talk about the problems that we face in the NHS, the problems that we face in care homes. One of the difficulties that we've got at the moment is that the two things don't seem to talk to one another very well. We know for a fact that when COVID was at its height, an awful lot of problems were created because hospitals discharged patients into care homes. Many of them were positive with COVID. Many of them died as a result. Many of them passed it on in those homes as a result. Um, the problem for me with care homes is that it's run as a for-profit business and I don't think that's a good idea and I don't think throwing more money at privately owned care homes where people make an absolute fortune charging um, you know, old people very, very large amounts of money to look after them uh, is not really the way forward. But let's talk to Dr. Wakar Rashid, consultant neurologist, MS specialist, find out what he makes of it all. Wakar, very good morning to you. Afternoon, I should say. Hi, Mike. Thanks, Hi. Uh, thanks, thanks very me. much indeed for joining us. I mean, a couple of things really to kick off with. One, um, I don't know whether you think that Sajid Javid's idea to put a couple of percentage points on national insurance is a good way to fund uh, the care system or indeed whether it would work. And secondly, um, why is it that the care home sector is so kind of detached almost from the NHS as a general principle? Um, I mean, certainly uh, the sector needs funding, however one does it. Um, you know, however one raises the tax burden, although it, it is funny because in the last 18 months, there's been so much spending uh, without really any consequence on mm. lots of things that it's... Uh, it's funny that this particular thing needs an increase in our tax burden. But I mean, putting that to one side, however one does it, there definitely needs to be more money put into the, the sector. Um, it's, as, a, as a sector in itself, the care homes uh, have, 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 grow, have evolved really without a coordinated pattern, as you say, in the private sector, without really um, coordination with uh, local NHS trusts or other NHS organisations, and so you have this disconnect, and it, it is a problem. Um, there's all, uh, you know, it's been recognised for many, many years, and nobody really has wanted to take this on it because it's difficult and it costs money, and logistically, it's not simply a case of throwing money at it as well. It, there needs much more coordinated organisation as well. Mm, I think that's right because part of the problem, it seems to me, uh, Doctor, is that we've got. 
um, a sort of burgeoning elderly population, more and more people are going to be finding themselves having to, to go into care homes and many people um, will be sending their relatives there perhaps because they can't look after them anymore and they do and they've reached the end of their lives. But it seems to me to be a terrible shame that if you are one of those uh, who's got a house, you have to sell the house in order to pay for the care and the people who own the care homes are quite often very wealthy individuals. It, it, it's a real postcode lottery uh, in terms of provision and it has a knock-on effect across the whole health chain mm. so for instance uh, in acute uh, hospital trusts and secondary care you could be waiting for availability to what's called step down care from acute care into um, either residential or nursing home care so into the care home sector and if uh, there is no availability or unsuitable availability in that area, then it has a, a knock-on effect to acute care within hospitals. And obviously in primary care, so at home, if there is no availability, again, it, it can lead to greater resource being used within uh, community care to keep people in homes. If that's impossible, then they just have to go to hospital and take a bed there when they may not necessarily need it. So it has a knock-on effect and across the whole health chain. And it is so uneven that it is effectively like a postcode lottery. Mm. And as far as the way that the NHS kind of delineates, I suppose, patients, because I noticed from your Twitter that you've been talking a lot about the different stages of care, the primary care being a very important one uh, as the sort of starting point for people as they travel through the system. Um, you know, the mo at the moment we're hearing that NHS patients are not being discharged to care homes because there's a shortage of staff in those care homes because many people have been laid off due to the fact that they won't take uh, the vaccination. And yet they then end up being hired by the NHS, bizarrely. So, um, yeah, it's just to understand. So primary care is, is what uh, people on a day to day basis uh, will interact with so GPs and uh, also uh, district nurses and community nurses and uh, community rehabilitation mm. teams and they're they're the group of people uh, who are, I think are key in keeping people out of hospitals and it's so so important uh, that that sector is functioning well because if it isn't then people are more likely to go to hospital and it puts pressure going on and then Following the hospital side is, if you like, the step-down care into the care sector. And as you say, uh, there have been issues that have been reported about uh, difficulty discharging into care homes and care homes uh, in some areas uh, uh, flagging up uh, a lack of places and a lack of carers. Now, uh, the issue with vaccination is something that's coming. I think there's always been, though, prior to this, a problem with recruitment into the care sector and numbers within the care sector and that's always been a limitation and it's it's going to become worse by the look of it mm. uh, so what reports are suggesting is potentially up to 40,000 uh, people who are employed in the sector may not take up the vaccine by the deadline so the first vaccine is uh, later on this month and with the second vaccine by uh, the 11th of November and if uh, the government follows through and what it's been saying it's going to do, then uh, that group of people, up to 40,000 people potentially, will then not be employed anymore in the care home sector. Mm. And that is going to be, I mean, it's, it's just under 10% uh, of the whole workforce. So you can imagine in an already 
uh, in an already underemployed section of, um, of vital healthcare, what knock-on effect that could have. So this really needs some urgent attention. Yes, because it is, I mean, my feeling, Waka, I don't know about you, but just to stay on the vaccine question for the moment, is that the vaccine conversation seems to be moving around at such a high speed that it's almost impossible to keep up. You know, we were told that whether well, the vaccine was the answer, that the vaccine was a way out of all the problems that we've had. It hasn't proved to be the case. We're hearing more and more now of people who are getting COVID, even though they've been double vaccinated. We're hearing more and more now that children uh, should be getting vaccinated down to the age of 12. We're also being told that um, effectively there could be a third booster coming for everybody and then maybe a fourth booster. I mean, when's the when, where is the end to this? I think it's um, it's a really difficult one to get your head around. Um, the first thing I'd say to people is that uh, our, our experience, uh, the vast majority of people's experience of vaccines is the standard childhood vaccines that we get, so measles and so on. But that's not really applicable to COVID and what we're what we're dealing with here. It's much more. Uh, uh, an issue of uh, more the use of a vaccine for say how we use the flu vaccine so i think there was never really a prospect uh, unfortunately that we were going to get the same protection as we do with measles with having the covid vaccine it's uh, it's a more complex virus and it's uh, it's changing shifting more unstable and so it's much more akin to uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, influenza and how we use vaccination there I think the other thing to remember is that uh, people are changing all the time. So, for instance, uh, as people's health worsens for other reasons, uh, as people get older, their natural immunity diminishes. And therefore, the protection, even if there is stable protection from vaccination, it's not clear what sort of waning effect or reducing effect over time there may be with vaccination. It's, it's still a bit unclear, but people's natural immunity naturally uh, diminishes over time with other uh, other uh, illnesses or just simply with age. And so over time, people, even if they're vaccinated, can start to become vulnerable again. Uh, and so the, the, you've got this shift always happening over time. And so uh, that's been the rationale for offering um, or potentially offering booster jabs. And the question that the JCVI have, which I don't envy them, they've got a very difficult job, is trying to prioritise on an ongoing basis uh, what is a changing situation and who should be vaccinated, who should be getting boosters, what age groups and so on. From what I've seen um, so far, I think they're doing a pretty good job in that they've uh, announced about uh, offering a third vaccine to the extremely uh, vulnerable, which makes sense because those are the people who are most at risk of COVID and also who are most likely whether it be for their medications that they're on, which lower their immune system. Yeah, but this is, how it all, this is how it all started at the beginning of the year, isn't it? When they said they were going to vaccinate the vulnerable, and then they were going to vaccinate yeah. the people over 60, and then it was over 50, and then it was over 40. And, I mean, I've already done a monologue on this many times, you know. Um, and I worry that they're, that they're not being entirely truthful with us because what they're saying is, oh, let's uh, give a booster to the vulnerable. You know exactly what's going to happen next, that by October they'll be giving boosters to everybody. I think that's the clear intention, isn't it, that uh, there's going to be a wider booster rollout. What I've seen is potentially people above the age of 50. But as you say, you get this sort of mission creep yeah. happening over time. And uh, I think uh, particularly uh, from what I've seen from some 
uh, some people who are offering their opinions on this, there seems to be uh, this sort of uh, almost like a wider imperative to vaccinate rather than what I think we should be doing, which is to be looking on the person's individual risk-benefit analysis. So, for instance, if you're looking at uh, teenagers, so the, the 12 to 15-year age group, um, the risk-benefit really has to be, I think, personalised to them, in my opinion. So looking at their risk of COVID and then looking at their benefits. And so their risk of uh, the COVID vaccination and the benefit from having a vaccine, rather than it being used, in my opinion, as a tool for wider society to try and lower uh, transmission as a whole. Uh, that's not how we've tended to use vaccination yeah, particularly in terms of influenza in the past, it's yeah. been very much a risk-benefit on an individual basis, which is what I would have thought should be the continue to be the case. Yes, well, I think yeah. most people's view is, look, I'll take a vaccine if it protects me. Um, if you don't want to take one, that's entirely up to you. Uh, and frankly, if uh, you're asking my son or daughter to take one in order to protect you, you could get lost. Because what we don't yet know uh, is whether or not it's dangerous for younger people to take it because we haven't had it around for long enough. But we don't know whether there are any effects that we should be aware of. And also, for me, um, I think the bottom line is, is if we now know that, for example, you can still get COVID and some people can still get it quite badly, even though they have been double vaccinated. Um, you know, what would be the reason then for vaccinating children? I think... Um... So I've, I've, I've seen a couple of different arguments from what I, from my reading. One is uh, as a means, it's never really explained exactly how, uh, if you can still get positive COVID tests, uh, of keeping schools open. So again, I, I, I'm sceptical about that because, um, as you say, you can still get the positive PCR test, the natural flow test, and that uh, I think it really, the way we keep schools open is more looking at our procedures and how we respond to positive tests rather than uh, simply closing down uh, parts of school from uh, what may be an asymptomatic or very low risk outbreak. Mm. Um, the other thing has been, as you say, the example you cite uh, is to, uh, well, if we keep uh, the rates of COVID down low in school children, that will protect adults. But as I say, that would be a different concept to how we've tended to use vaccination in the past in terms of looking at um, vaccinating one group for the benefit of a completely different group. And I, I think a lot of people may be uncomfortable with that, particularly if there is risk. Now, obviously, if something is completely devoid of risk, has no risk whatsoever to children, then yet that, then that's something we one could consider. But I think we need to know a bit more about the risk to children and particularly um, what's been reported in countries which are currently vaccinating. And I think the JCVI have been right to be cautious about this. They seem to be under possibly some pressure, but they are taking their time and I support them doing that because I think this is not a, a simple case of um, the vaccine is, is uniformly good for everybody in that age group and therefore it should, be, it should happen. I think it's something that's much more nuanced and needs to be th thought of much more carefully than that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my problem with a lot of it, um, uh, Wakar, is that there isn't an awful lot of actual fact doing the rounds and there's an awful lot of opinion there's an awful lot of people projecting there's an awful lot of people saying well we should do this and we should do that but not very many people are going and this is why you know because the matter because the story keeps changing so it, it there seems to be a sort of an all or nothing sort of uh, attempt at trying to shape the debate so for and and this i think is a bit on both sides mm. so you you've got obviously you're 
people at the extremes, uh, one side who, you know, are, are if you like, uh, very much in tune with uh, the independent sage sort of group of people who uh, are arguing, it seems to me, for almost permanent restrictions and vaccination. Yeah. I mean, I regard independent sage as a fringe uh, a group of nutters, quite frankly. I wouldn't pay any attention to them at all. Um, they're a, they're a self-appointed group of uh, people who've got very distinct views, which I think are really, in my opinion, are on the extreme end of the spectrum. Yeah, and yeah but simply... they give themselves a name as if they're somehow an official body. They're really not. They're just a collection they've... of maniacs who get together once in a while uh, and issue and sort of instructions from the earth. They've managed to get a lot of uh, media attention uh, by giving them themselves that um, that kind of, of self-appointed authority. And then you've got uh, a group on the other side who um, who are anti-vaccination for everything. And mm. I, I think the vast majority of people are in the middle, to yeah, be of honest, course. I think, and yeah. uh, would want vaccination for the vulnerable and when there is a clear benefit over risk but are not doesn't mean that they're anti-vaccination if they don't feel that there is a benefit for a particular group of people no exactly i mean i've been asking now for many many weeks um to see why um that some people are affected badly by the vaccination uh, while some people are not i'd like to know if there's any data that supports um, you know, links to anything like that, because that would be helpful to people. I'd also like to know, for example, about my teenage children, whether anything that they may have suffered from in the past would have an effect on any vaccination that they might get. Uh, similarly, I'd like to know why some people are affected worse by COVID than other people. And I'm not talking about those with, you know, comorbidities. I'm just talking about in general. And you'll know this as well as I do. I know loads of people who have had it. And it's been a completely kind of... Um, broad spectrum of, of, of effects. And, you know, sometimes the symptoms are, are hardly there at all. Sometimes they're very mild. Sometimes people are really ill. And I would like to see the government collating that kind of information so that we could look at it and say, well, you know, maybe if you've been a smoker, you will be uh, uh, worse off. Or, you know, if you've suffered from any respiratory disease, you, you know what I mean? I just think we need more information. I mean, they're, they're great questions, really. And uh, it's been one of the one of the most disappointing aspects for me um, has been because you know you've 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 said a number of them very well, and there are many more. That, that because of the complexity of the of human health in general, of disease in general, it means that the the various models that have been used to inform and drive policy are, are never going to capture this complexity. And this is why the modelling invariably doesn't get it right, right. Um, <clears throat> because you can never put in. Uh, you can never put in the variables and the assumptions to adequately capture the complexity of human health and disease. And, uh, you know, there, there's been a, it seems to be a, 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 an inability of the people who uh, are using that or, uh, who, you know, very uh, clever people and, are, you know, doing their best. But I think there's been a, somewhat a failure to acknowledge the limitations and what actually modelling should be useful, which isn't to drive policy, but to help inform. Mm. And I think also um, the, the other thing which has been really disappointing, again, touching on what you just said, has been the, it seems to me, the complete inadequacy of promotion of health in general, to actually give people a better chance to have better outcomes. If they do contract COVID, you've got a far better chance of doing that if you your health in general is good. and. Uh, you know, there's been, it seems to me, a complete over-reliance on restriction and vaccination, which have 
place in the circumstances without there being actual health prevention and boosting health to actually, which actually is is is, is a far more relevant, mm. uh, <clears throat> not just for COVID, but for other conditions, thing that could be done. Yes, I think that's right. Um, we've got to leave it there, I'm afraid, Dr. Wakal Rashid. Thank you very much indeed. A very interesting conversation. I think the, po- the point about all of this uh, is that we need more information because every time they say, this is the answer, now we've got it, this is what you do. And then they go a couple of weeks later, actually, that wasn't the answer. It turns out we'll have to look for another answer. And now we'll have to do this and you'll have to do that. And I'm getting sick of it, to be honest. Uh, Dr. Wakar Rashid, consultant neurologist, MS specialist there. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.